Welcome to the Renew Northwest podcast, a ministry of Christ Church Bellingham. Renew Northwest is dedicated to helping the church in the Pacific Northwest be rooted in the gospel, wise in the scriptures, and equipped to engage the culture for Christ. Today's episode is a reading from a recent Renew Northwest article by Pastor Nate Walker. Find this and other articles about theology and the Christian life at RenewNorthwest.com. Hey everyone, this is Pastor Nate Walker, and today I'm going to be reading for us uh, my article on uh, baptizing babies, five scriptural arguments, part one of a, of a two-part series, and here it is. One of the hallmarks of Christ Church Bellingham is the conviction that the children of active church members committed to discipling their children should be baptized is truly uh, one of the doctrines that makes my heart sing. It was what inspired my wife and I to start having kids young when we were first married. We now have five teenagers, praise God. So naturally, I love introducing it to others. And over the course of my ministry, I've talked to many families for whom this was a new practice. As I've uh, explained our reasons for it, I found it helpful to divide the case into two parts, a scriptural argument and the pastoral argument. I think they're both important. In this article, I will condense the scriptural argument into five statements. And then in the next article, I'll explain what I call the pastoral argument. So according to the Bible, why should we baptize the infant children of church members? Okay, reason number one, the children of God's people are always included in the covenant, both in the Old Testament and the New. The children of God's people are always included in the covenant, both in the Old Testament and the New. The basic promise of God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament was to be a God to them and to their children after them. In fact, the Lord gave the lavish promise to those who love him that he would be a God to their descendants to a thousand generations. You can find that Exodus 20 verses 5 and 6, Exodus 34, verse 7, Deuteronomy uh, verse, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. This promise is captured most powerfully in God's covenant with Abraham. And this is from Genesis 17, uh, verses 7 to 12. It says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout uh, their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Okay, Genesis 17. It strikes me uh, 
that the New Testament ties this sign and seal of circumcision to Abraham's faith in Christ. So Romans 4.11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So even though Abraham was to receive justification by faith, the sign of the covenant was still given to his eight-day-old son, Isaac. This is because God regards the children of his people to be a part of his covenant with them. They, too, receive the covenant sign with the expectation that the children will be nurtured in the faith. Just as the Lord told Abraham in the very next chapter, he says, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis eighteen nineteen. This pattern of the Lord giving his promise to the children continues in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, and Peter gave his great uh, sermon of the gospel uh, to the people of Jerusalem, and they were cut to the heart, and they asked, what should we do? Peter responded with a call to repentance and baptism, and with an added word about their children. This is what it says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, the children are included in the promise. And that's why when the Apostle Paul writes to a church and addresses them as saints, like Ephesians 1.1, he addresses the children as well in Ephesians 6.1. God deals with his people through households, and the, covenantal, the covenantal structure of the Old Testament household remains fixed as redemptive history moves into the age of Christ in the church. Okay, so that's reason number one. Uh, the children included in the covenant. Okay, reason number two is that circumcision and baptism are analogous sacraments both signifying the same thing, which is regeneration. Okay, so circumcision in the, in, the, in the Old Testament and then baptism in the New Testament are analogous sacraments, both signifying the same thing, which is regeneration. Now, one of the main scriptural arguments for infant baptism is that infants were circumcised in the Old Testament, so infants should be baptized in the age of the church. Uh, part of the rationale for this is the analogy the Bible sees between these two sacraments. The Apostle Paul clearly sees a connection between them, saying that we are circumcised in Christ through baptism. This is from Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So part of the reason uh, for the change in the covenant sign is that uh, circumcision involved the shedding of blood, the cutting of the flesh. It was a kind of sacrifice. But now that sin has been put to death in the cross of Christ and the, uh, and the cutting of his flesh, the sacrament of the gospel uh, no longer involves the shedding of blood. So uh, Jesus is our circumcision. 
But it makes sense that there is a parallel between these sacraments, mainly because they're both signifying the same thing, which is regeneration, you know, being born again. Uh, Regeneration is the work of God to give us new hearts. The Lord always intended that his people not just be circumcised in their flesh, but more importantly, in their hearts. Uh, Deuteronomy 11 says that. It is remarkable that though the Lord commanded Israel to circumcise their hearts, he knew that they would fail to do it. Therefore, he promised that when the Spirit was given, he would circumcise their hearts. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 to 6. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among uh, all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples uh, where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's Deuteronomy 30. When the Lord's promise to change the hearts of his people by the giving of the Spirit is later prophesied, strikingly, it was in connection with baptism, this same promise that God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. It's in Ezekiel 36. Listen, now it's tied to baptism. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. In the same way, the New Testament ties baptism to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It's Titus 3, 5 and 6. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you hear that connection between regeneration, washing, and the renewal of the Spirit. I know uh, these are a lot of scriptures to digest, but the theme is clear, is that circumcision and baptism are analogous sacraments. Uh, circumcision is is a sign pointing to circumcision of the heart. Baptism is a sign pointing to the regeneration in the Spirit. If infants received circumcision as a sign and seal, it only makes sense for infants to receive baptism as well. But it is not only that the theology of the Bible can be reasoned this way, but the practice of the New Testament church matches what we would expect to see. And so that's the third reason. So we've seen uh, that the children are included in the covenant in, the, in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then that circumcision and baptism are analogous signs. Uh, and circumcision was given to, to infants and it was a sign of regeneration. Uh, but the, the third reason that I want to point out is that the repeated pattern in the New Testament is that believers are baptized along with their household. The repeated pattern in the New Testament is that believers are baptized along with their whole household. 
And you could almost call it a formula used in the New Testament that so-and-so was baptized with his household. We live in a much more individualistic society, so it does not seem as natural to us for whole households to enter into covenant with God together, but the Bible views families as connected units. If you are a child of the covenant, it is something you have to choose out of than something you choose into. Therefore, as we read through the book of Acts, households come into the faith with the parents. Okay, Acts 16, verses 14 to 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Okay, Again, in Acts 16, verse 29 to 33. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And he uh, brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all uh, who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. And then again, uh, Acts 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, b- believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, uh, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And then again, 1 Corinthians 1, 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes even further to say that in a household with even one believing parent, the children are regarded by God as holy. This is 1 Corinthians uh, seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is... They are holy. The coming of Christ has involved an expansion of those welcomed into the kingdom and the covenant people. That means that the sign is distributed more widely. Not only do Gentiles receive the sign, but also women. To restrict children from the sign is to move in the opposite direction of the pattern of redemptive history. In fact, the Old Testament promises um, in fact, the Old Testament promises that in the age of the Messiah and the Spirit, the running of grace through families would continue. This is Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And that leads to a a fourth reason why the scriptures point to a practice of infant baptism. This is number four, is that the argument from silence is in favor of infant baptism. So the fact that the Bible doesn't say anything, the argument from silence is in favor of infant baptism. Now, you might hear all this and say, well, yeah, this all makes sense, but why doesn't the New Testament ever just come out and say that a baby was baptized? And I would argue that it is, it is saying that 
just by using the word household. But it is also important to realize that the silence of the New Testament on this topic strongly points in favor of baptizing infants. The early Christians of the New Testament were largely Jews. They were uh, used, used to the patterns of Jewish life that had a strong sense of family and God's covenant promises to their children. If with the coming of Christ, children no longer received the sign of promise, there is no doubt it would have been a huge controversy. We have other controversies in the New Testament. You know, should Gentiles have to be circumcised? Which day should Christians celebrate as a Sabbath? What foods are permissible for Christians to eat? If children were forbidden from being baptized, we can be confident that the question would have come up in one of Paul's churches, and he would have had to address it. As it is, that never happened. The silence of the New Testament on the matter says that there is a seamless continuity from the Old Testament to the New on the status of children. They are included in the covenant, hence should receive the covenant sign. Okay, so we've seen, we've seen th- four things so far that, that uh, children are included in the covenant in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Circumcision and baptism are analogous signs, uh, both uh, pointing to uh, regeneration. And then uh, number three, that uh, it's a repeated pattern in the New Testament that believers are baptized with their whole household. It's kind of a formula throughout. And then fourth, the argument from silence is in favor of infant baptism. And so our final point that I want to point out from the scriptures is that infant faith is considered normative in the Bible. And maybe normative is a little strong of a word. We might say infant faith is at least normal. And I recently after church, I was talking with someone who disagrees with me on, on infant baptism, and he made the kind of loving jab that he doesn't believe in baptizing unbelievers, and that's why he doesn't believe in baptizing infants. And I was surprised, surprisingly offended by this comment. You call my covenant children unbelievers? So I want to address this question, are we baptizing unbelievers in this final point? And it's important to understand that our church's Uh, understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in baptism is mysterious. The Westminster Confession of Faith has some very helpful statements on this. We strongly believe that baptism is uh, one of the primary means the Holy Spirit uses to communicate the grace of Christ to someone. But sometimes that miracle of grace happens when they are little and sometimes it happens when they're older. And so this is what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, verse uh, paragraph six says, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. This means the Holy Spirit is really working through the baptism of covenant children, but it is common in the modern in modern American Christianity to assume that every Christian child is going to have a conversion experience. At some point in adolescence, we tend to think they will rebel against their parents, and then they must repent and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
that's the standard pattern. And uh, we'll address uh, some of the problems with, assumption, with this assumption in the next post, in number two. But my experience is that most people who tell me their testimony when they become uh, church members actually say, I don't remember not believing in Jesus. Yes, there was a time in high school or college when I had to make my faith my own. Maybe I rebelled a bit. But I have believed ever since I was a child. Is it possible for someone to be a believer from infancy? How normal should we expect that to be? I lean towards far more normal than many of us think. The most famous account of infant faith is John the Baptist, who praised Jesus while he was still in the womb of his mother. But the Psalms seem to suggest that it should be a norm, not just for prophets, but God's people more generally. Uh, This is Psalm 22, verses 9 to 10. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And similarly, Psalm uh, 71, verses 5 and 6. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth, You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. The promises of the scriptures are incredibly hopeful for Christian parents and Christian children. Over and over again, the Bible sings to us of God's purposes to be a God to our children. For parents doing the hard work of raising young ones, these promises are your foundation. For parents with older children wandering from the faith, these promises are the substance of your prayers. May the Lord baptize many children in our community and may we give him glory as the Holy Spirit bears fruit in their lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Renew Northwest podcast. If you've been blessed by this content, please leave us a review, like and follow the show, or share this episode with friends or family whom you think would enjoy it. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at renewnorthwest.com.